Welcome to What the Fish, a podcast where the fish guys at the Field Museum in Chicago talk about marine life, new and crazy species, natural history news, and fish. Who are the fish guys? We have Dr. Leo Ruffles have Ridges Smith, head of fishes. Hey, Beth. Dr. Matt Slam a Stack of Pringles Davis, postdoc. And Dr. Eric Betcha Just Can't Eat One, Algren. Hi there. He's our consultant for fishes. And I am Beth Flamin' Hot Sansenbacher, your host. And it is. Dun dun. Dun dun. Dun 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 Shark Week, man! All right, so it's Shark Week, guys. Are we excited about sharks? Nope. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to be here with all my chums. Oh, oh my god! Oh, oh yeah. Did you think about that for a while? No, no, that's pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now I'm going to be racking my brains for puns for the entire rest of this episode. No, don't do that. Yeah. All right. So, what do you guys think of Shark Week? You know, this time of year, every year, lots of places like us doing this special podcast for it, or music aquariums will often have shark dissections or other things. I think that having Sort of a yearly event is good for fishes. Yeah, it definitely calls attention to the biodiversity of sharks in a way that's good for biologists and the general public. Anything that kind of stems some of the perpetuating fears of sharks as being incredibly dangerous or other things is probably good. Although, of course, they can be that, but, you know, there's more to sharks than just that. I just sort of wish it would, the shows would go beyond sharks a bit during Shark Week. They're, They're running a little low on material in my mind for <laughs> sharks at this point. I had a, I had a friend who had um, a uh, pet schnauzer and the dog never paid attention to television except during shark week. Turn shark week on, the dog would sit and watch television the whole time. That's weird. The dog wanted to look at sharks on TV. That's super A schnauzer? Weird. Yeah, little little mini schnauzer. The dog would sit in rapt attention watching shark week. Maybe he was looking at all the dogfish sharks. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to make some sort of joke about there, not like that they don't have bone or something, you know. Yeah. Some well, I, so so are these shows are are these shows entertaining and informative, or are they primarily entertaining? Or can can we speak to that really? I think they were more informative when they started. They started out and it was sort of repetitive, but all the shows were good, or mostly good. And now they're trying, you know, they want to keep viewership up because we all we're not going to watch it over and over and over again, and so. It's logical that makes sense the way it's going. I just think that they've they've focused on a few shark researchers and then start going into conservationists and other things, and maybe they should explore other researchers. Like if you why not interview someone like Mark Westneat here at the Field Museum who does feeding ecology or feeding morphology, functional morphology of feeding. You know that you could go into some other category that sharks are involved in well yeah but sharks are sharks are sexy and exciting and thrilling and they're big fierce you know uh, vicious animals and people want to see sea captain type scientists who stand there weather beaten on the deck of a ship pointing at things uh, on the horizon that's that's good tv but i think mark would be good you know if i'll just keep using mark as an example like you know, he would be on there. He would have biting. They could make models for him. I mean, like, there's a certain amount of money oh, yeah, that goes. Yeah, there's yeah. a certain amount of money that goes into the, those shows, and why not? So, what you want more is more research. science and less spectacle. Is that what you're saying? Well, I, I, I think Mark is capable of bridging both of those, actually. But he, I just, I just would like to see some diversity of it. It's like I feel like 
we're going to see the sharks off the Farallon Islands. We're going to have like the most recent shark attack. We're going to have some victims. We're going to see some surfboards. We're going to see some like nets off of South Africa. Getting getting into like the science of sharks then, then what is like what really gets you interested about sharks as, as you know, their biology or morphology or, or I don't know, genetics? Like does anything get you guys really jazzed about sharks? You know, I like diversity. So I like things, sharks that are bioluminescent because there's fish, yeah. bony fishes that are bioluminescent. Well, there's, cool. there's venomous sharks and that's like. Sharks, I, you know, I'm interested in. There's biogeographic patterns because they'll reproduce and distribute themselves a certain way because of their reproductive biology and current distributions and the habitats that they can survive in. So there's lots of things that I like about them. But what about what about you guys? What makes you excited about sharks? I one thing I like about sharks is that they are kind of such an old lineage or group of organisms, and so like other than just the ones that are alive today, they're there's a pretty interesting fossil record for sharks, which is something that also is not talked about. And I mean, some of the kind of extinct sharks are probably just as interesting or even maybe even more interesting morphologically than oh, yeah. the sharks that are around today. I know that that's favorite. My favorite like creature ever is Megalodon because it's a gigantic shark. I mean, I don't, I just imagine swimming and seeing it and then crying and then knowing like game over, <laughs> like that's it. But like, yeah, I mean, but that's I, just a giant one. I mean, there's ones that have crazy things coming off their heads. I mean, like Matt's absolutely right. I hadn't really thought about it this way, but the fossil sharks are far more interesting to me than the living sharks, which is the exact opposite of bony fishes. Well, and then there's the you know there's other cartilaginous fish lineages like placoderms, um, things like that, like you know giant armored mm. like cartilaginous groups that may or may not be really closely related to sharks or their own separate lineage. Um, I think I think Leo's right that, that Shark Week focuses on probably 15 or so species of a group that's actually more diverse than they portray. And you don't actually get into other cartilaginous fishes like you. They don't really get into chimeras, which are pretty totally interesting. Totally awesome. Yeah. yeah. Or like you don't really get into skates and rays or... Yeah, I mean, there's a remarkable little about rays on Shark Week. I know I get that it's called Shark Week, and so some people might not know that stingrays and manta rays are part of that whole group of cartilaginous fish. But Yeah, they'd call it cartilaginous, cartilaginous fish week if uh, that's what they want to talk about. Yeah, and on I the Chondrichthys channel. I, think <laughs> I mean, at the heart of the whole Shark Week thing is, like, I guess, is probably the spectacle of chasing after great whites or tiger sharks and the danger and upplaying all of that so they don't. I think I, I think I would like it better if they focus more on some of the different biological aspects of all of these things. Like, there's a lot going on with sharks other than just that, just chasing great whites around. I mean, and I think you could actually make a show like that because people like to see like fighting. I love the show. I don't. I don't. I'm not sure who did it, but they like pitted like megalodon versus like a great white to see versus who would Superman. win versus Superman. <laughs> but you know, you can keep that because people like to, like, and I like to watch. You like to watch stuff fighting and competing and the competition. So you could be like, okay, if you had a stingray versus this guy, who would win? And then you could actually go into you know why this yeah, ray is like awesome. Brackets, like, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like the final, we need to make a TV show. I think, I think we can happen. Eric, what sharks do you love? Uh, you know, uh, uh, the most interesting thing I heard about sharks in a long time. I guess I, I sort of recapitulate our uh, what we talked about in our first episode. The really amazing thing is that 
we are more closely related to bony fishes than sharks are mm-hmm. related to them. We are closer relatives to a salmon than a shark is to a salmon. And I found that really sort of mind-blowing, mm-hmm. the idea that uh, it, 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 it's a fish, it's got scales, it swims in the, it swims in the water, it's got gills, it, uh, uh, it's got a tail, it's vertical, and yet it's further away, evolutionarily speaking, from fish to where, from, from where we are related to fish. Probably by, you know, 50 to 100 million years. Yeah. We look, like a really long time. We look nothing like fish. Well, we, we get four limbs, <laughs> we get a pelvis, we get a jaw, we get... What, what are some of the, what, uh, 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 apart from the uh, genetic differences, what are, the, what are some of the main differences between cartilaginous fish and bony fish? And aside from the fact that one has bones and one has cartilage. Well, so one of the, well, it's sort of a offshoot of that. So a lot of the bones of what we call the suspensorium, which are the, the sort of the cheek of a, of a fish, a bony fish, mm-hmm. those elements aren't at all in a cartilaginous fish. So there's two kinds of bone. There's bone that started life as cartilage, mm-hmm. which is endochondral bone. Okay. And then there's dermal bones, which are bones that are formed first straight out into bone. And so car- obviously anything that never had a cartilage, cartilaginous sort of precursor are all new bony elements that only bony fishes and humans and tetrapods and whatnot have. So whether this is the hyomandibular, which is sort of the main sort of cheek, like sort of the core cheek element of a bony fish, which becomes the stapes in our inner ear, like sharks don't have any of that. And so in terms of jaws, in terms of anything, like there's just elements all over the place that are fused in that we sort of think of as sort of a core element they just don't have. So how do how do sharks get their bite force? I mean, is the, that all muscles? The, like yeah, it's all cheek. Do, but, and we have, do it, bones play into like bite force at all? I would I I would just think something that had bones would have a stronger bite than something that I think the did bones not. do in terms of the articulation between the the things they're actually biting plus the muscles and where they're attaching. Like all of that plays into creating the bite force. Yeah, I mean, you can make a model for anything, um, but, I mean, the main force, all the force is driven by the muscle, but the attachment stuff can give you, like, lever arm advantages. I mean, like, it's an interplay of physics, but all the bite forces from the adductor mandibulae, which we have, they have. So would something with the, so, like, I don't know, where do sharks rank in terms of bite force? So in terms of bite forces of cartilaginous fishes, the placoderm, uh, Mark Westneed and, was it Anderson? Yeah. Uh, two researchers here at the Field Museum in the University of Chicago. Specifically the Dunkelosteus placoderm. Right. The, so the genus Dunkelosteus. And they did uh, bite force studies on that and showed that it could crush, like, for example, like, right, bite, bite right through a T-Rex skull. I mean, they played sort Good of... Good Lord. It was sort of... Doing your fun, thing. It's yeah. like fun spin, but yeah. like... Placoderm it, it versus was, T-Rex. Right. But right. It, was, it was highlighting just cool. how strong these things were. Hmm. And they even made a model, and it was on some TV show where they, like... We're crushing things with, you know, with a like a big model that exhibits here at the Field Museum. Made. I'd like one of those. Keep it in my trunk. It's uh, bigger than a trunk because the <laughs> oh, head okay. of those things is like the size of like the front half of a Volkswagen. Oh, keep it in the front half of my Volkswagen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, in terms of bite forces, sharks can be pretty impressive. I mean, it's sharks have to bite with their oral teeth rather than their pharyngeal teeth. And not all sharks do it the same way because some sharks have serrated teeth that are kind of curved. So when they bite, they shake their heads to slice things, and some just bite and rip stuff off. Like depending on the, the tooth morphology, they feed a little differently. Right, and you also have some filter-feeding sharks, like yeah. the big whale sharks and uh, megamouth and things like that, all filter-feed, so they've got it sort of 
completely different thing. It's more like a whale's system. But because of this biting thing, that's the part of the reason sharks attack us or seem to attack us more or something is because they actually bite to rip the flesh off to eat, whereas a normal fish sort of is more of a swallowing kind of situation or a scraping situation. And so that's part of... Well, sharks seem closer to us in that respect, even though they're, they're genetically farther away. Yeah, they, they we like... use our mouths the same way. Yeah. And, but, but, you know, we have the advantage that we have hands. I mean, but the main thing is that, like, if we're, you know, if we're going to have sharks, I mean, I think it's important to highlight that, you know, you have some of the most fascinating behaviors of fishes in general occur in sharks. You know, they never played up, but, like, you know, we have bioluminescent sharks. So you have species that have light organs that are sort of all on the sides as well as the, the bottom of the body, I believe. Um, it's evolved at least a couple times, right, Matt? Yeah, a couple times within one group of sharks, squaliform sharks. So in two separate families. You know, so you have things like that. There's venom at the, we just got back from the annual, uh, what we call Ix and Herps, which is the annual meeting of Which is not, be- a, not a disease. Not a disease. <laughs> Ix and Herps is not a disease. It's an annual meeting of fish people, frog people, Sicilian people, turtle people. And one of the things that was shown there is they showed that the angel shark is venomous. So that was a group of sharks that wasn't known to be venomous before. Ooh. Uh, it adds even more confusion to like how venom evolved in, in sharks. So you have it in the stingrays, obviously, and then you also have the manta rays are also venomous. Uh, there's also some freshwater stingrays that are venomous. You have the angel sharks, which are angel sharks. If you look them up on the, on the internet, you'll see that they're sort of like a mix between a ray and a shark. They're kind of cool, kind of low, flat things with wide heads. Yeah. And then you have the dogfish are venomous, uh, actually both the bioluminescent Groups of sharks are also venomous, so hmm. really up my alley. The chimeras are venomous. I mean, venom is like not randomly distributed, but pretty sporadically distributed across the shark tree of life. So you also have horn sharks are venomous. And so it makes it really hard to figure out who's venomous when we're finding new ones or identifying the new ones that were venomous, to, you know, in this, you know, in 2013. Well, there's a lot about shark biology in 2012. Don't know. Like yeah. some of them migrate for thousands of miles. You know, some of their reproductive behavior is completely unknown for a lot of these groups because some of them travel, you know, down to the deep sea and they come back up all the time. And sharks are huge. I mean, in terms of there's, if you go when you if you go to Taiwan and go to their fish markets, you'll actually see that they're they're uh, collect, collecting through trawls large, large, large numbers of some of the small bioluminescent venomous sharks. This, these are being ground up like other fishes for to feed cattle and things like that. I mean, it's part of the process in Taiwan, but just to think the sheer number of these things, because they take forever to reproduce. I mean, sharks, you know, the period time from when they're born to when they reproduce is much longer than a bony fish. Sometimes you're upwards of, you know, certainly more than 10 years, but often you can be 30 to 50 years wow. before you have your first reproductive. For Really? 10 yeah. years? Yeah. That's yeah. super long time. Well, and that's part of the reason why shark finning is so bad is because mm. you could be really damaging populations. Fish of the week. I have. I'm going to assume it's some sort of shark. That's, and good, that's a good guess. I'm going to describe it. I'm not going to look at the tag. And they're they're small. They're about I would say what like six seven inches long. Oh, and they have kind of they're blackish gray and they're thin. They're very long and thin with kind of 
curly curly tails and they have large eyes like actually when i look at them they kind of look like like something that Gollum would eat in his <laughs> cave or would be swimming around with Gollum in his cave does Gollum live in freshwater yes oh, okay is that, is that <laughs> am i totally wrong what are these guys so those are the splendid lantern shark. Those are in the family at Mopterdae, and they are one of the most common sharks you'll get in Taiwan if you're just with a bottom trawl. Uh, so these are one of the venomous shark families. So they have a, one spine in front of both of their two dorsal fins. It's venomous, and they have a, several other sort of behavioral stuff that's kind of interesting. So they're they're also bioluminescent. So this particular family of Squaliform sharks. So these are related to dogfish sharks. So if you're in a high school biology class or maybe even a college level, like comparative anatomy class, you probably dissected a dogfish shark at some point. Um, so these are close related dogfish sharks. Uh, and these particular species are all deep sea and they have bioluminescent photophores both on their bellies, which are used for camouflage, and also on the sides of their body, which are actually species specific patterns which probably explains why there's sort of more species of these than there are some of the other deep water shark groups. That being said, uh, benthic sharks and rays like the skates up in Alaska and things like that are some of the most species-rich groups of, of all the cartilaginous fishes. Yeah, so there's something else about these fish is they don't get, particular, they don't get particularly large. So probably the largest edmopterid is about three feet. So in general, they're they're smaller than like a foot and a half long. So they're not, these are not typically like large sharks, but it, it just goes to show too again that, that uh, the diversity of, of sharks is greater than what usually one usually gets just from like the picture of shark week. Not, not all sharks are tiger sharks or bull sharks or big man eating sharks. Like this is a relatively small. Yeah, these are smaller than herring. Mm. Yeah. I mean, these are not particularly large sharks, but they're also pretty interesting in that they're venomous and they're bioluminescent and they're found worldwide. They're weird looking too. Um, yeah, they're because they're found in the deep sea, they have they have kind of a darker coloring pattern that probably helps them. Do they um, have shark mouths and shark's teeth? Like, yeah, like what are, I was going to say, what I mean, are, yeah, they do. Like, yeah, they do. Uh, what like are rows they? of teeth. Like that um, they're also closely related to the cookie cutter shark, which you might have heard about. They're a deep sea shark that has modified teeth um, where they come up and they kind of stick to you and then they just like take a plug of tissue out. Um, that's also uh, in the in the squaliform group. What, what do they eat? They're eating. They're sort of living the same lifestyles, like a, a, what are called grenadiers or rat tails. They're eating small fish, small crustaceans. You know, they're, they're, I suppose they're potentially competing with the rat tails, but and they also vertically migrate too. Right. Mm. Pretty as do the rat tails, and yeah. so does it have nostrils? It looks like it has pretty big. No are they nostrils? There's, there's big holes. Uh, are they right behind the eye? Um, they're in, like uh, like on the top of. Are the they where nose. you think the ear would be? Oh no! Okay, those are nostrils. There's also something called the spiracle, uh, spiracle, which spiracle. is usually a little higher. But that's you're looking at the nostrils. Yeah, I mean that gets back to our sensory mm. talk, where the yeah. because they're in the deep sea, they're trying to they they don't have any light to see anything with, and so they're using the nostrils and probably electroreception to identify prey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they say sharks can smell blood from. Extreme distances. Right. So there's been studies, I don't know about which exact species they've done with all these things, but the uh, comparison point is always that if you were to drop a, they would be able to detect a difference of like dropping a tablespoon of salt into Lake Michigan. Like there's all these, like they're, they're such a fine scaled you know, sensor. Those are always a little so exaggerated. The receptors are very, very highly attuned. In, right. In Those are always sharks exaggerated. Sharks. Right. They are, you know, it's like they put like right. the, the most, the strongest, most 
you know, it's like smelling salts into the water is one thing than like putting like a little drop of blood or something. Right. But, you know, it's, that's, that's sort of a, you know, it gets at that point. And that there was a recent. <laughs> yeah, because it wouldn't be impressive if they could detect a cup of salt water in Lake Michigan. <laughs> yeah. It has to be a teaspoon of salt water in Lake Michigan. You have, have to get that last little bit of exaggeration in there. Right. And so there was a recent study for, on these and the other bioluminescent group, which are the Dilatids, which are also squaliform sharks, that, that suggested that both groups evolved bioluminescence since the KT boundary that where all the dinosaurs went extinct. So it's a relative to their life, the history of sharks. The history of sharks. It's a relatively recent phenomenon. That's not to say that there weren't older groups that had done it and have just gone extinct, though. Yeah. We don't have the best fossil record of deep sea animals, but Especially for sharks. Yeah, Carlatus fish are worse yet. Yes, because there's nothing to preserve. Well, and there's hundreds of millions of years that we just don't have a decent fossil record from anything. And a lot of the fossil records for sharks are teeth. Oh, okay. You don't necessarily get the whole body. Yeah. No bio, there's not too many light organs on teeth. No. That'd be cool, though. Yeah. yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> that'd be awesome. Smile. You'd be like some sort of really creepy smile thing. Yeah, mm. it's like a horror. There's like a horror movie there somewhere. Yeah. So let's talk about the this the little article that just came out about field museum scientists up in the Pritzker lab. So uh, the article well, that was super interesting. So the article came out led by some researchers at Stony Brook uh, that included some work using microsatellites that were developed here at the Field Museum. Uh, I believe Kevin Pildheim, who's the lab manager here at the Pritzker Lab, was an author on the paper. And all they were trying to do was figure out what shark species were in shark fin soup, and they went to ten to twenty restaurants across the United States, or actually maybe more restaurants, ten to twenty cities. And they were just uh, using these microsatellites and barcodes, maybe it was barcodes, um, to figure out what species of shark were in different soups to see if illegal, you know, threatened sharks. What do you mean by microsatellites and barcodes? What is that? Those are uh, genetic tools. It's, it's like a quick and dirty species test, you know, the different ones for different species. Of so you can animals. take just a little sample of, of meat off of a shark's fin and put it in a test tube and then and bring it to a check lab. check the genetic code for a specific you. area. What areas do they target for sharks? For sharks, they use CO1, cetachromoxidase yeah, 1, which is a mitochondrial gene. So it's not in the normal nuclear genome. It's in an offshoot uh, genome that's carried mother to child. Um, but I'm sorry, what, I interrupted you. Go ahead. But yeah, so they were, they, it's so what you do with this is you sequence the CO1 gene, and then there's a, a database that has probably 40 to 50% of all shark species in it. And then if you get an identical match or a nearly identical match, you could say this is species A or B. If it's a little different, you could at least get in the ballpark. It's not going to be perfect because it's kind of a small marker and sharks are really old. So it's not going to be perfect if it's not a perfect match. And it's not always going to be perfect with a perfect match. But it's close. And so as a shotgun method, it works really pretty well. And so what they were able to do is, I think they ended up with like something like 50 or 60 different species of sharks in the shark fin soup, which would have surprised me. I would have thought, you know, it's like five or six in the United States anyway. And a whole bunch of them, you know, 10 to 20 of them were threatened, if not full-blown endangered or somewhere in between. And a bunch of them were unidentified, which just highlights the need for more shark species to be put into the barcode uh, database. 
but so yeah, so what they were basically showing is that people were still catching sharks illegally and they were it's widespread and rampant. Yeah, I mean, even like one of the cities they went to is Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is kind of near where I grew up. And in the middle of nowhere, I mean, you would think it would just sort of be, you would think it would be a thresher where a dogfish would be the shark fin and the shark fin soup. Um, just because those are the most commonly collected sharks. But they were a, a handful of different sharks. Like they even got in Albuquerque. You think that the demand for shark fin soup would be rather small, except in certain, you know, larger cities and certain ethnic communities where where that's commonly consumed. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not a real, you know, man of the world or anything, but I've eaten a lot of different stuff. I've never had shark fin soup. Uh, I've seen shark fin soup on a menu, but I've never ordered it because. I mean, is there like a ton of people wrong. out there eating shark fin soup? All well, the it's, time? A, it's 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 like and, caviar. It's like I don't really like caviar, but it's certain. Well, and for a yeah, long time, it's had some weird associations, like specific effects. Like, oh, is it, it one of those things? Is it like increased sexual potency and stuff like that? Most yeah, weird things. Kind of, yeah. yeah, it's, it's got, also a measure. It's a sign of wealth because it's expensive because you could throw away the whole body and just eat this. And it's absolutely horrific. Yeah, um, basically, there's no good reason to eat it. No, it's you just, just shouldn't be eating that. Like, there's lots of other food that is we it the can most eat. delicious part of the shark? Or well, I don't no. think any of. No. I assume none of us have had it, so we can't really yeah, answer no, that. Yeah, I wouldn't say. Yeah, but, but you haven't heard I, that. I, I assume you, that it is not. When you see like you know people actually catching sharks and they bring them up and they just hack off the fins and then toss the body back into the ocean, it's just it's such a waste to die. To die, right. yeah. To, to absolutely die, and it's no, just it seems such a really waste. And irresponsible. And if there's one good thing about Shark Week, it's that it, it, on some level, should be helping to promote why sharks are good and why we want sharks around and why, you know, we don't want to do this kind of behavior. I mean, I think they sh- they uh, they attempt to show that. I don't know if those are less those ep- those shows that show that or the episodes of shows that are showing those kinds of things or is watched as much as the more. No, I know. But in just in general though, like the idea of sharks as being these interesting, I don't know, creatures you're getting at those, like those ideas. I mean, they should certainly upplay the fact that these things are going on. And the problem is it's hard to, you know, how do you stop other countries or other places from doing and participating in this kind of behavior? I mean, some of it for some of those cultures, they've been doing it for so long. It doesn't even seem unnatural to them. They're having to go, kind of further afield to get their sharks Yeah, as sharks are becoming less and less. And one thing that was really interesting, especially in the, in the Pacific, um, things like Fiji and Samoa, like they weren't aware that, you know, these foreigners were coming over and doing them to these sharks. And for, you know, them, like shark is like, it could be a totem. Like it's a very, you know, that's nothing that they would do in their culture. Right. So that's something that would really upset them and that they would want to protect now that they, they know what's happening. Um, and you know, that's something we can help, protect around our waters because and it's the same thing i mean there were some studies initially with uh, caviar and some whale studies where people early on started using dna techniques to try and identify what species were being used in these things and so by that same measure with the shark finning you can find out that you know some species that's endemic to just palau is all over the place in shark finning. People might be like, wait, what? Like the people of Palau might not, you know, like you're saying, but like when you get these barcode, these DNA sort of fingerprints, if you will, of fishes, you can start to, every, there's more to learn about other than just what shark is there. That shark could be restricted to one country or it could be, you know, just completely unknown that people were even collecting that. And the problem is common names or something like that mess things up. So like you get something like Chilean sea bass, sounds like it's a sea bass, 
you know, like a grouper or something, but it's a completely un, not completely unrelated, but a related fish, not of all of a grouper, like, you know, makeup that's now off of like Antarctica and Chile and Argentina. And, you know, a lot of people, I think just assumed their Chilean sea bass was some sort of grouper like thing that they were eating, not something completely different. And it messes that stuff up too. So here's a question Uh-oh. that I don't think there's an, I don't know if there's an answer to, but why is there comparatively so many fewer freshwater cartilaginous fishes? There are marine, like how come cartilaginous fishes have not necessarily invaded freshwater systems very successfully? Ooh, yeah. Like there's a few freshwater stingrays say like in the Amazon. There's a freshwater shark in Nicaragua. I don't, what, what's that guy called? The Nicaraguan freshwater shark? The only reason I know it is that it, it, it lived in the lake that we, like, um... Bull sharks can sometimes the get it. wasn't a Paku? Like, bull sharks will get in a freshwater shark. No, it was a shark, and there were people there who would know that. Like, they weren't just, like, flying mm-hmm. to me. Like, no, there no, there's, there but the question is whether it's got to be in like, freshwater. attack people. Um... We're gonna we're gonna look it up right now. I but mean, yes, they've I would, had bull sharks get up into the Mississippi. I mean, the, that would they be crazy. they handle fresh even, water pretty pretty well. Yeah, why is that? Why are why are most sharks marine and not? Well, part of it might be you know, depending on whether you're in freshwater marine, you have to get rid of your ammonia waste the way we ur- we urinate. They have to get rid of that, and it's different. One of them has to, you know, when you're. You're try, you basically have to, if you're a fish, you have to expel this through a process where you either are drinking, effectively drinking water to dilute it, or you're, you know, basically forcing it out into salt water. It's like all about diffusion of those chemicals across like a barrier and how you have to fight that system with salt crystals. And, you know, there's a, it's complicated, the salt glands and things. And sharks do all of that differently. So they've got you know, they've got urea and ammonia and they're traveling around in their blood and they, the whole process is different and it may just not be all that well suited. Yeah, that's the case though. Like what does a freshwater stingray do with that? Like, I don't know, but I mean, obviously some sharks can handle it. It's just a matter of, like, I was just wondering like how come sharks have never become any kind of dominant fauna in any freshwater systems? Mm-hmm. Like what is, what's keeping them from taking over? I'm you know, sure I mean, somebody would say competition, like rayfin fishes or out compete would, are doing that. I don't know if it's that, you know, it's, I'm sure somebody would be like competition. No, I just think it's interesting that there's, there's so another few. Uh, research question out there for any <laughs> aspiring graduate students to tackle. Go figure it out. Yeah. That doesn't, from my Google search, that doesn't appear to be any freshwater shark proper that's restricted to freshwater. Huh? There are some, there are several that are in freshwater, like the bull shark, but right. But there's and that's, not, what, that's, that's probably what it was. Probably. Um, but it's not like this is a freshwater only shark. Right. If you chuck it into the sea, it would get totally mad and die. Right. I mean, and I think part of this has to do with the urea system. I mean, they don't have swim bladders, so they don't, they often use this ammonia urea thing as part of their whole, you know, how they get, Become more neutrally buoyant. They don't have swim bladders. Nope. So how do they? How do they sense where they are in the water column? The way they kept sort of a neutral buoyancy was a combination of uh, fats and urea and you know weird chemicals or however you want to look at that in their blood. And then some people had speculated that the shark tail is not symmetrical. It's got a, the upper lobe is longer than the lower lobe, mm-hmm. and there had been some speculation with physics models and, you know, engineering and whatnot that said that that was providing lift. Hmm. But a lot of recent work using sturgeon and a few shark species has sort of shown that that original hypothesis is correct. They're not really getting any more lift 
than a symmetrically tailed fish, fish like, like your average sunfish or something like that. To me, what's cool about sharks is they have all the same sort of things we come to think all fish should have, uh, but there are just way fewer of them. And, you know, and the, you know, then part of that is what make, is the, goes with the fossil record. You know, they're an ancient group. Well, and they're a textbook example, too. Like, if you want to get into the evolution of jaws and things like that, like, that's one of the first groups people will go to to start studying those things. Right, because they're the, they're the oldest living group that has actual jawed, as opposed to, like, a lamprey or a hagfish, which is jawless. Yeah. All right, so how dangerous are sharks to humans? Less dangerous than... Honeybees. <laughs> <laughs> or hippopotamus. Uh, oh, the, yeah, hippos. Mm. I mean, the, the issue is that if you Sharks do get attacked, <laughs> it's more severe. It's like an air, it's like plane crashes versus car crashes. There's way more people die from car crashes. Other than a few times uh, during the day in a certain few areas across the world, sharks aren't ever going to bother you. I mean, you're always going to have freak accidents. Like the mm-hmm. Well, and most of the accidents are always in the kind of the same localities, and they're generally from the same activities. It's lost surfing. Right, but we don't spend that much time in the water. I mean, like a... a but that's what I mean, but you're putting yourself in the, into an area where you are at a higher risk. Yes. And, or in, even into like a habitat that's a higher risk. Like if you're doing, if you're surfing off of the coast of Australia in specific areas or South Africa, you're going to be at a higher risk than, you know... Florida. Florida. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, though, I can tell myself all day long that, you know, I'm more likely to get struck by lightning than to be attacked by a shark, even as an ichthyologist. Um... But it's not like when I'm swimming, I don't go shark in my head. <laughs> it's not. Please don't a, eat me. <laughs> you know, I, I you know I don't worry about most shark species, but you can all you know you, you, just like the Stever when you know incident with the oh with that the sting, was so weird with the stingray. I mean that. Let's talk about that. I mean that, well, that was, was so random. I mean, how does that happen? Yeah, I bad, like I would like luck. to know the probability of that actually occurring i mean people get stung by stingrays every now and then it was just that it happened to go up under his ribcage right into his heart right i mean it was it was more about piercing his heart and injecting there than anything yes right i mean the you know you could easily you know some kind of weird coral could easily you know we don't have any data on how many people get like stabbed under water by just you know sort of mistakes i mean or like get hit by propellers i mean people uh, comparatively they're they're not they're totally safe I mean, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, you don't want to go. Try to make one angry. Yeah, you know, I don't, I, I wouldn't go feed stingrays at Stingray Cove or whatever <laughs> it's called. Like, that's not my idea of a good idea. Like, that's a bad idea. Jim's house of stingrays. I, I never liked the idea of being in a cage, like, you know, in South Africa where they take you on the tours and they, like, chum the waters, bring the great whites around. Yeah. That's, that still freaks me out. I mean, I know. It's probably super safe, but it's like uh, it's no. not super safe. I don't that's know. A bad I, idea. I was just again. Like, that's a high you, risk. Why yeah. are you? Why are you putting yourself in that situation? And I was no. Yeah. It's probably as safe as bungee cord jumping or something. I mean, like, yeah. like there's going to be accidents anywhere. But it's this. Like, you know, that is a, something that's always sort of bothered me about shark shows on television. Uh, uh, any kind of show that involves uh, big dangerous animals, but shark shows specifically, where it looks like again and again you have groups of people who are out to provoke and annoy, and and it seems like the whole point of this expedition is to go out and get some shark to bite you, and they go and they chum the water and they swim around, thrash around in their in their uh, uh, chainmail suits and their tanks and stuff, and get, and make these sharks very very 
uh, angry and agitated and cause them to bite. And, and I always I see these shows and I think, you know, why don't you just leave these creatures alone? They, 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 wouldn't, they wouldn't be bothering you. No. If you weren't out there provoking, it's all about the money. Yeah, I mean the thing is like things like Jaws, like movies like Jaws, which I like. It's a good movie, That's but they movie. they promoted an image of sharks as being these killing machines. Mm-hmm. Sharks l- prefer to feast on young female uh, <laughs> uh, researchers. If Jaws has taught us anything, <laughs> yes, young it's female, young female in the water get, is yeah. going to get eaten, right? Right, especially if they're naked after dark when they shouldn't be. Yes. In Jaws' defense, only one female is eaten in the whole movie. Is it really just the first woman? I think so. Yeah. Because after right. that, it's just it's the kid and then oh, the, yeah. like the sailors on that boat and then don't give any spoilers, spoilers for the ending. <laughs> <laughs> but like, if you so. haven't seen Jaws by now, stop this podcast yeah, and go out and rent go Jaws. Watch Jaws. I think they just released a new version or an updated version. Yeah, they just released a remastered version this really? week. Go buy really? it on Amazon. <laughs> well, use our affiliate program. <laughs> so if you click on Amazon from the Field Museum website, mm-hmm. we make a tenth of a cent for the collections so, department. Like people want to hear fine. about the dangerous and the big and the the toothy. Like people like lions. They like you know. They're just like people like predatory things and they like the danger. Well, and it makes sense for us. I mean, evolutionarily speaking, we should be more interested in learning about that stuff. I mean, we want to avoid it. We want to, you know, it's. There is some I understand, inherent I interest the idea in of trying to avoid it and understand. No, but there's it, exploitation, like, like you're talking about. It. Yeah, I mean they're yeah. exploiting those things to get to essentially make money, and it, and, it, and it works. I mean, yeah. there's that's why Shark Week's such a big deal. I mean, it makes a lot of money for these people. That's why they right. promote this so well, so much, and that's why they're going to continue to go out and do this because people like to see the videos of the great whites jumping and eating things or like. I've got another kind of uh, stupid question for you guys. Uh, you were talking about uh, uh, ecology and trying to save the sharks and preserve the sharks and and trying to keep them from uh, their numbers from uh, uh, being decimated and from going extinct. And my dumb question is, why do we care? Wouldn't the world be a better place if we didn't have big, vicious sharks, even if they're not going to hurt you most of the time? I mean, what good are they? What are they doing out there? Well, there's a I don't know, but I shark might say the same thing about us, though. Yeah. Why? Why should they give a crap about us? I mean, that's like. <laughs> but they don't. I mean, <laughs> the sharks don't care about us. No, the, there's always been a debate in biology or at least ecology about whether the small things rule the world or the big things rule the world, whether everything is bottom up or top down. Mm-hmm. And there's no doubt that, just like every other aspect of biology, that like some amount of it's both. And if you start removing the apex predators, things go awry. So, you know, you take something like, it doesn't seem like an apex predator, like a, uh, like a sea otter. So you rip all the sea otters out of the California and Pacific coast, and suddenly sea urchins' populations explode because sea, for whatever reason, sea otters like to eat sea urchins. And then the, those uh, sea urchins get in large enough numbers that they go and wipe out all of the kelp forests. And so if you remove the kelp forests, you're gonna. That's the breeding grounds of just an amazing Everything. ton of things, including great white sharks on the California coast. That's where they lay their pups, like off San Diego and and Mexico in the kelp forests. And so you've removed this quote unquote apex predator, the the, the mighty sea, sea otter, and you know so things start having to like adapt to that. And so the question is, that's why it matters. If you take out you know, that's implying that I guess that all sharks are apex predators, but a lot of the ones that we would be worried about are. No, you but know, in an ecological role, once you start messing with it, yeah. you can have a domino effect that could 
cascade mm. in all kinds of unpredictable ways. I, I love the pictures of like food of real food webs. I mean, because it just looks like hair that's on like your drain after a very hairy person has taken a shower. You start pulling at one of those hairs, and then it just all kind of falls apart. Yeah, no, it's. I mean, that's the that's why they matter. Why we, you know why anything kind of matters, and some of them obviously are attacked by humans, or you know, or we're more afraid of them, or things we do would hurt them more, or whatever, than say like the deep sea sharks, where we're not messing around so much down there. There's some level where naturally things are just going to go extinct and mm-hmm. speciate over time, and it, you know, there is going to be some natural amount of extinction. It's going to happen. You're going to lose species like you cannot preserve species forever it's impossible it's just not going to happen but at the same time if we're going out of our way to harm populations of things that otherwise would not be harmed by us then you know we should also probably be going out of our way to try to help those populations come back once we realize that we damage them um and so there's kind of like a struggle there between people who want to promote and, and help biodiversity and people who want to make money off of like taking the fins off sharks and one of them is irresponsible, I think, towards the planet, and one of them's not. So, you know, why should we be going out of our way to damage populations of things that really have nothing to do with us? No, especially when there's lots of other stuff that we breed to eat. Yeah, there's just no reason to do it. Well, it's a way of life. It's a cultural issue. There's a lot of politics. Yeah, yeah but, but so we have like, to change, too. Yeah, like, it's always know. like smoking or other things. Like, yeah. There are lots of things that are ways of life that we eventually realize are harmful. And then the question is, are you responsible enough to stop them or not? And I agree, like, it's hard to get, it's hard to get people to stop doing things. And certainly people don't like being told they should stop doing something. Mm-hmm. And so that's, it's almost not realistic on some level to expect, like, certain cultures or certain people to stop doing something because it's so ingrained in the way well, they, they do. are. Well, it's your job, you know, it's cultures, how you make your money. Cultures your change all, yeah, the, all the time, though. No, and it, but mean, yeah, they do, and it takes time. Like this is the kind of thing that, like a yeah, hundred years time. from now, we might look back and be like, "Yeah, that was really stupid. Why were we doing, doing that? that?" It's a complicated issue, I guess, for lots of reasons. But it's all a part of life's rich tapestry. <laughs> if you want to agree, disagree, or want to ask what the fish, tweet us your question at fm underscore what the fish. And once again, so long and thanks for all the fish.